This is the second episode of Ask Me Anything, where you get to ask me anything. So that is the way that the show works. If you want to ask me a question, you can go on to ingersollnik.com slash AMA and put your question inside of there. So let's get right to it. Sean Magira wants to know, what do you think is a great sales strategy? I just started my first startup. So the first thing, Sean, um, don't be that one guy on LinkedIn or Instagram or email or anywhere else just uh, fucking spamming me, okay? Because nobody likes it. Um, if you don't know, everybody hates getting the emails that says, Hey, I haven't heard from you for a while, but uh, check out these hyperlink, hyperlink, hyperlink bullshit. Um, you're basically trying to be personal, but it comes off very impersonal. Essentially what that is, it's like the uncanny valley, where it's supposed to look real, but you can clearly tell it's fake. So don't do it. That's a bad sales strategy. So now that I've told you what a bad sales strategy is, maybe I'll answer your actual question, which is, what is a great sales strategy? The first part to a great sales strategy is believing in the shit you're selling and also not allowing somebody else to tell the story because the person that's going to be able to deliver that message better than anybody is the founder of the business for a litany of reasons. And for, if for some reason you don't feel confident in getting into the sales meeting and doing all those things, you need to go in front of a mirror and figure the shit out. Go in front of your friend or your mom or some random dude on the street somewhere. Might get the police called on you. But anyway, just try it out. Like, get in front of somebody or some mirror or something. Record yourself. Even act as if you're doing a podcast or doing a, do it on video in front of yourself. Something where you get that pitch down and it's not even about the pitch right because memorizing a pitch is also a bad strategy it's it's better to sort of just know the bullet points that you need to hit and be able to just wax poetic on them sort of like i'm doing now so i would say do that sean also don't rely on a sales guy or gal that has been doing this for a million different years and they may have great insights don't get me wrong but the best sales strategy is for the founder to deliver the message Questione numero dos. Uh, Drew from Mojio wants to know what made you want to get into the food business? So, Drew, I wouldn't say that I wanted to get into the food business, actually. I like creating businesses, and I just like creating things in general. So I would say the food business sort of found me. It's one of those things where when you see a market opportunity and it's related to something that you are super passionate about, then jump on it. For me, I've started a tech company. I've started several other random companies as well that you don't know about and a food company. And I just like creating new shit. So that's kind of the answer to that. Um, the reason that I decided to go the food route is because there was a great market opportunity. We were going to do something that no one was doing. It made a ton of sense. It was fun and awesome. I grew up on a farm in, in rural western Nebraska, so I shaved sheep and branded cattle and did all that kind of shit as summer jobs. So I've always been around the food supply. I'm also an athlete, so I watch what I eat very closely. So in that way, I've also been very closely and intimately related to uh, in my life to food. Oh, and by the way, everybody eats it. So we all have that in common as well. 
Okay. Question number three. I feel like I'm on some sort of game show. Question number three. Okay. Um, Daniel Castillo wants to know, what advice do you have for someone who wants to get into the food business? Ooh, this is the food business AMA segment, I have a feeling, which makes sense. Sorry, I had to edit out some coughs. I am getting sick. The first thing you need to know is that there's not a ton of money in it, meaning that your margins aren't that great, meaning that once you make the sale and you subtract your cost of goods sold, you don't have that much money to spend on things like salaries and marketing and trade spend and warehousing and logistics and yada, 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 right? So um, what that looks like is when you sell something, maybe you have a 50% margin on it, product margin, just straight up sale minus cogs. And that's not that great. And you want to aim for 60? Shit, and you want to aim for 70. But in cosmetics, supplements, and technology, you'll see margins 80% plus. And in food, it's just not that way. So the first thing to know is that. The second thing is start online because that's the most capitally efficient way to start your food business. Get on Amazon.com, get on your own website and start selling there because you can take those retained earnings and invest it into all the other things you're going to need to pay for. And it will be a cheaper overall cost of sale online than it will be brick and mortar. And also know as the third thing that once you do go brick and mortar, you're going to have to raise capital if you want to scale. It just kind of is what it is. The cash turnaround cycle takes way too long, meaning that as soon as you, you have to buy your raw materials, right? And when you do that, you're paying maybe 50% up front and then 50% when the product's done. And then you have to get it to a co-packer, shitty payment terms there too, because you're small and you're new. And then you sell to a distributor who's going to give you net 90, net 60, um, net 30 payment terms meaning that they got a long time to pay you. So your cash leaves your bank four, six, eight weeks before you ever get paid on it sometimes. So just in that sense, the scaling effect in the food business, especially when you're going brick and mortar, is vast. And you're going to have to have some pretty buttoned up financing strategies to deal with it. So I could go on about this topic forever, but for now, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. Melissa Kraus wants to know how did you overcome marketing challenges if I had any so yeah I've always had marketing challenges everybody does everybody will everybody will continue to always have them forever until you die um and that just sort of is what it is right like culture and society and technology and business and markets move all the time the only constant is change so the only way that you can make sure that you're still around is to change and oftentimes what I'll see people do it might sound a bit intuitive right oh of course you don't want to ride the wave and not crash into the rocks and brah but actually what ends up happening is people get scared and they say well I've been doing this one thing that's made me all my money I'm not going to spend extra cash doing some experimental shit that might not work. But the problem in that mindset is that the experimental shit that you are spending money on now, you could discover will make you much more money in the future. So I would say overcome the marketing challenge by A, owning the problem, B, doing a postmortem, and C, looking outside at alternative options that may work out better for you in the future. Question number five. This is my favorite question because I have a terrible answer for it. So Mir Zahat wants to know what's the best business book that I would recommend. So here's a secret. I don't read business books. I just don't like them. 
I, you know, I, I, it's, it sounds weird coming from the business guy. I get it. But the thing is, like, my friends will recommend me these books, right? Oh, dude, you gotta fucking read Shoe Dog, bro. It's such an inspiring... <laughs> I don't care. I just don't care. And it's not any knock on those people and their success or anything. <clears throat> I just don't like reading about other people's stories. It just, I couldn't give a fuck. So, yeah, I do read books. I just don't read stories about, you know, call it how the founder of Nike went on to enslave children and make sneakers or whatever he did. Um, just kidding, I didn't read the book, of course. Uh, I also haven't read things like Harry Potter, so it doesn't, make, it doesn't matter if the story is real or not real. I don't care. Um, the things that I do read are sort of skill-based books, things that I can acquire skills from. So I'll read things like how to learn Finnish or how to interrogate somebody like some FBI dude did and sort of, you know, that kind of thing. I also read things like Jocko Willink's books because they're war books, but they also have leadership takeaways in them. So those are the types of books that I read. I'm a terrible person to ask this question, but I'll answer it since you asked me. And if I was to recommend one, I would say Letters from a Stoic by Seneca the Younger, which I did a book club episode on earlier. I think it was episode three, I want to say. I think what I want to say was three. So I would recommend that. And uh, yeah, don't take my advice on uh, what business book is best to read because I don't like them. Question number six from Nathan Hirsch. How do you think tech is transforming e-commerce the most? So, nitty-titty, the thing is, is that technology is sort of the birth mother. It is the Mother Mary and the Yahweh and the Flying Spaghetti Monster and the Odin and the, all the other shit that created e-com. Whatever works right now, don't expect it to work tomorrow like Facebook ads. Facebook ads have worked for so long. And what's happening right now is the CPMs are going so high that the only brands that are able to advertise on Facebook is something that has at least 50 bucks as a price tag. Because without having a $50 price tag or above, you just can't efficiently spend enough money to get enough customers at a cost of acquisition that makes sense. Uh, it's the same thing that happened with AdWords and email, and by the way, all those things will always work, but just don't rely solely on one of those things. And if you are currently relying on one thing, like organic, Instagram, I would say diversify, try other shit, because whatever you're using now is going to be a lot less effective real soon. Question number seven from Jordan Kreese. Kreese. Sorry, I'm definitely pronouncing that last name incorrect. With Barnana, would love to hear about your digital strategy and plans for growth marketing. Okay, this is a big one. So, of course, when you have a multi-million dollar marketing budget like I do, you spend a lot of money on a lot of stuff. So the first thing for us, and we're going to talk purely digital here, uh, the first thing I want to talk about is Facebook ads. So one of the most effective strategies that I have used in the real world to drive traffic from online into brick and mortar stores to purchase products is through Facebook ads. So for instance, if we're running, if, if I know that the best stores for Barnana are X, Y, and Z stores, right? And they're in LA and San Francisco and in New York, I will geofence those stores 
and then I will deliver ads. And if we're having a sale, I will put that in the ad copy. I'll put you through some sort of click funnel, um, whatever's the most efficient. So always A, B test every single piece of creative copy, et cetera, et cetera, to find the most efficient way to spend the ad dollars and send them to a page that shows them where to go buy the product. Because I already know I'm targeting people that shop at Whole Foods and are also geofenced into this general location. And that is proven wonders. I track it. I look at the data reports. I look at the daily and weekly velocities and it is very effective. Another way that I spend the digital ad dollars at Barnana is on Amazon.com. And the reason that I do that, and it takes up a big part of the budget, is because people are doing one thing on Amazon. They're not posting pictures of their puppies, okay? They're not sending videos, funny videos to their friends. No, they're not wishing you a happy birthday or watching some chick shake her ass in an Instagram video. None of those things happen on Amazon.com. The only thing that happens on Amazon.com are people putting shit on their credit cards. That's it. That's the only thing that happens there. And so because of that, you can measure your efficiency of spend so much easier than through Facebook or Google or Instagram or whatever, because all those other platforms have a click window and they have a pixel on your site. So when you're driving traffic to your site from any of those other places that I just stated, like Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube, etc. You're having a click window, meaning that they're saying, "Oh, well, you know, uh, if if somebody clicks on your ad, even if it's accidentally on Facebook seven or thirty days ago, depending on what your your settings are, and then they purchase from your site, then Google, Facebook, etc. Say, ching, that was because of us, but it also could have been because they sampled your product in a store, or they saw your organic Instagram following because they're a big fan." or they got served an email, or something, or word of mouth, or et cetera, et cetera. And it's just the click window thing. It's just not that, anybody in the space will tell you, it's not that clean and easy. But on Amazon, it's also not clean and easy, but it's much easier and cleaner than those other platforms. Because again, when you're on Amazon, you're doing one thing, and that thing is buying shit. Question number eight, do you see any room for display video as a marketing compliment? Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, and that was from Phil. Shout out to Phil. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, but I also see room for virtually everything as a marketing compliment. I wouldn't rely on it. Uh, it could be an unlock in your business. I doubt it would be. But try it out. See what it does. You want to have a diverse marketing mix no matter what you're doing. Question number nine. Do you sell equities of Barnana? Asked by Stephen Lush. So the answer to that is yes, but um, it is a little more complex than that. So let me think here. What is the level of sophistication of my audience? I'll just explain it as this. So we are a privately held company. uh, Therefore, you can't buy stock in the company unless you're an accredited investor. And we're also raising capital at a specific point in time. So we have raised several million dollars from angel investors, venture capital groups, etc. And what that looks like is we do a formal capital raise. We're saying, hey, we're going to raise five million bucks. Who's interested? And then people that have been in the industry and invest for a living say, I'm interested. They give you the money. You take the money. You make them more money is basically how that works. So, yes, we've raised capital and sold equity in the business. Question number 10. Evan wants to know. 
Uh, I don't know why I'm singing. Hey man, just wondering what your advice on being an entrepreneur. I think what he meant to say is, hey man, just wanted to get your advice on what it takes to be an entrepreneur or something of that sort. I would say, um, hmm, I've covered that subject in detail, especially if you listen to this podcast. So I apologize if it is a bit redundant, but I will start by saying, um, get a plate, get uh, a bib on or something like that. And I would say either, I would say a fork, but you might need a spoon and just get ready to eat plates of shit for dinner every night because that's basically what entrepreneurship is you are running around with your head caught off you're going through really high highs and really low lows and you gotta try to keep yourself steady and in the middle the thing about entrepreneurship is you're going to be responsible for people's families and kids and loved ones and livelihoods in a way in which when you're working for somebody else you're just not like if i fuck up and tank my business, that means that Stephanie doesn't have money to buy her kids food, you know? So responsibility comes to mind at scale. You know, that's one of the things that I think about a lot is making sure that every single one of my employees feels whole and and that amount of responsibility is big and you gotta be able and ready to take on the brunt of that stress. Also, stress. Get ready to be stressed all the time and also work a fuckload. Oh, and also sacrifice other shit because here's the thing. If you want to be, you know, Conor McGregor, if you want to be LeBron James, you think those people just worked smarter to get there? No, they're busting their fucking ass every day and that's the only way you're going to get to where you want to go. So question 11. Lucas asks, I want to make CBD dog biscuits. (laughs) Commercial kitchens are expensive. Is my next step to outsource production or just make it myself? Okay, Lucas with a K. Shout out to Lucas with a K. CBD dog biscuit question. Love this question. So the answer to this is the best thing to do is to have a co-manufacturer, which means you're outsourcing the production. Which means you don't have to deal with minimum wage employees at scale, unskilled labor, workman's comp, OSHA, you know, heavy machinery that can fuck people up, um, workplace safety, a building, property tax, all this crazy ass shit you don't want to deal with it. The FDA, the blah, 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 fuck all that. The best way to do it is to get a manufacturing partner. And that means outsource manufacturing. Oh, and also the dirty secret is every single brand that you know, I would say 95% of the brands that you think of are not vertically integrated, right? Even Apple, the iPhones they make, Foxconn makes them. And, and not only that, Foxconn is just the assembler. The pieces inside, they have a chip from Qualcomm, right? And they have a camera from Samsung, or whatever, and then Foxconn puts them together, and then Apple sells them in the United States. So that is the way that business runs. So it's very rare that a business is 100% vertically integrated. Unless it's an extremely simple supply chain, which this one is not, then it's 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 very it just is it's very rare. You can make them in your kitchen. That's fine. Uh, commercial kitchens are a waste of time, so don't do that. And like you said, they are expensive. And also, you just don't need them. You can buy a food processor on Amazon or a meat grinder or whatever the fuck you need and just do them at home. And if that's the best way for you to get started and just sort of solicit feedback, I would recommend that. But at scale, you're going to want to find a co-manufacturer.
All right, we did it. Um, that is it. So if you want to ask me a question, go to ingersollnik.com slash AMA. Please, please, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a five-star review. It would mean the world. It's the only way that this podcast will continue to go on is if you guys like it. So I really appreciate the time that you take out of your day to listen to the show. And again, if you have a question for me, feel free to ask. And until next time, I'll chat at you then. Peace. Welcome to the Nick Ingersoll Show.